1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Well, thank you very much, Chloe, for that reading. And uh, let me add uh, my welcome to Joe's. It's great to see you. My name is Danny, and uh, I hope to uh, be able to say hello to you later if you're new. And if you are new to us at Morelands, then we hope that this is the first of many, many Sundays that you'll be uh, with us. Well, let's begin this morning with a romantic story about my wife's parents. Back in 1971, that was a long time ago, <clears throat> before many of us were born, before I was born, in fact, just. Well, back in 1971, there was a long-running postal strike. You think today's bad, but the 1970s were really bad. And during this long-running postal strike, no one could send or receive mail anywhere in the UK for almost two months. Meanwhile, my father-in-law, Edwin, was working in a remote part of Nigeria, and he was determined to send a love letter to his then-girlfriend, Elaine, now wife of over 50 years, who lived in Kendall. Nigeria, Kendall, postal strike, love letter, what could he possibly do? There was no phone or fax, and of course, the internet did not exist. What would you do? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He discovered by chance that an American colleague was flying back to America via the UK, and while in the UK was going to do a trip to the Scottish Highlands from London. Now, Edwin knew that the main line, the West Coast main line, ran close to his parents' farm in Greyrig near Kendal. And so he wrote his long love letter to his girlfriend, put it in an envelope with the name on, gave it to the American along with a piece of string and a rubber balloon, and detailed instructions of exactly where to throw the inflated balloon out of the train window as it hurtled through the Westland countryside. <laughs> so one of the good things about the 1970s was that you could still open train windows in those days. The man listened carefully, and he did exactly as he was told. As the train hurtled over the exact bridge and the exact field, he threw the letter attached to the balloon out of the window. But as you might expect, in the jet stream of the train and the wind, it went off course by some distance. It missed its target. But by remarkable chance, it was picked up by a local railway worker who happened to be working on the tracks who handed it to a nearby farmer who he happened to see working in the fields, who recognized the name on the envelope and handed it to Edwin's sister on her way home from school, who gave it to her father, who then delivered it to its final destination. Not only did the letter beat the postal strike, 
but it was three days between writing it in rural Nigeria and receiving it in Kendall. And because it was near Valentine's Day and everybody was sick of the postal strike, it made the headlines of almost every national newspaper the next day. It's a great story, isn't it? Well, why do I tell you that? I tell you that story because God is like my father-in-law. <laughs> because he is a determined and kind communicator. God is a determined and kind communicator. He has graciously chosen not to leave us in ignorance and darkness that we deserve, but he has overcome every obstacle possible to get his message of love and hope through to us. So that as we read in that passage that Chloe just read, even the angels long to know what we know. And yet how easy it is to take that gift for granted. How many people there are in this world who don't bother to open a Bible or come to church to hear the word of God and how easy it is for those of us who do to become accustomed to the privilege, to take it for granted. Well, look with me at the two verses before the section Chloe read, verses 8 and 9. Peter says, though you have not seen him, that is Christ Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter, who wrote those words, had of course seen Jesus. I suspect there was no living person who had seen Jesus in the flesh more closely, more bodily than Peter. But he's writing to people who hadn't seen Jesus and he's writing to us who haven't seen Jesus and yet he says somehow there is a way that we can believe in him without the evidence of our eyes somehow we can know him somehow we can love him without ever having met him in the flesh somehow we can put our hope in him somehow we can have joy in him in the midst of trials And these verses, verses 10 to 12, probably better than anywhere else in the Bible, show us how. Now, I suspect that these few verses are fairly unfamiliar. I had a little look on the internet, and I could see that not many people actually sort of preach these verses on their own. They tend to fall with the uh, 3 to 9 section, uh, which makes sense, because they are actually all part of one long sentence in the original. And I suspect that this little paragraph is quite overlooked and unfamiliar. And so let's read them again, and then I'm going to ask for God's help as we look at them. Let's read them together again, verse 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your kindness and your determination in speaking to us by your word. Please now help each one of us to listen with humble and hungry hearts, with ears wide open, so that we might leave this morning freshly convinced of the glories of Christ that you've revealed to us in the Bible and newly determined to live for him with love, joy, and hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully you've got that passage open in front of you. That would be helpful. And on the inside of the notice sheet, you'll find a simple outline. And we begin with the search for salvation. The search for salvation. Our little paragraph begins by announcing the subject matter, doesn't it? Concerning this salvation. What salvation? Well, Peter has mentioned it a couple of times in 3 to 9 already. In verse 5, he's talked about a salvation that is in the far distant future. Look at verse 5, to be revealed in the last time. And then in verse 9, he said this salvation is being received now. And so there's a, there's a kind of a future aspect to the salvation. It's something that is coming, verse 5, and it's something that we have now. But what is it? What is that salvation? Well, it's important not to mishear the word souls in verse 9 and assume that Peter is referring to some mysterious hidden part of a person that goes on after the death of the body. The word soul in the Bible really just means self. And it usually refers to the whole person, including the body. And so you know the old SOS, Save Our Souls? When sailors in distress on the high seas are sending that signal, save our souls, they're not asking for a sermon on the afterlife. They're asking for a helicopter. And that is exactly what Peter is on about here. Real, solid salvation of ourselves that he's talked about in verses 3 to 9. To be saved, therefore, is to be rescued fully by God to be safely taken through death and judgment, to live forever with God in a renewed creation as we saw last week. It's that living hope that Becky was helping us to remember in verse 3. The inheritance that can never spoil or fade, verse 4. Eternal life, coming glory and peace received now. In other words, salvation is not just a nice sort of spiritual idea or an insurance policy. It is the rock-solid business of hope. It is where you and your bodily self are going to spend eternity. With God in glory or away from God in judgment. Well, if that's the case, then surely there is nothing more important for us to think about than salvation. If that is the case, there is nothing more important for us to be certain about than salvation. There are, of course, many urgent things that we can think about. The one that we need to be clear about, nothing should get in the way of being clear about your eternal destiny. And it turns out that we're not the first people to think like that. Because Peter now introduces to a bunch of people who are searching for salvation. 
If you were to do that Bible study exercise of running through these verses with a highlighter pen and noticing similar or connected words and themes, you would underline at least five words that express that idea of searching and discovering and seeking. We'll come back to the angels at the end, but just notice for now the prophets, by which he means the Old Testament prophets of God. Verse 10, who are searching intently and with the greatest of care. A phrase that could be translated as searching and searching and really searching. Verse 11, trying to find out, investigating, seeking. Well, who are these people Peter is talking about, these searchers? Are they just a bunch of spiritually curious people? Are there people who, by their own volition, simply got out of bed one day and said, I want to find out about God? Well, no. Because notice that before they are searchers and seekers, they are speakers. Look at verse 10 again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. Peter is speaking about the Old Testament prophets, the people who lived about 400 years and more before Jesus and had been given a message by God to speak to the people of Israel. Notice how Peter summarizes this message. He calls it the grace that was to come to you. In other words, the prophets had been given a message of future salvation to announce to the people of Israel in the past. That is why, as well as being speakers, they became seekers, because they were trying to work it out. Verse 11, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were followed. It turns out that the message the prophets were given to speak concerned something Peter describes as the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. But because of that, the very people who spoke it could not make sense of it. They were perplexed by their own message. And I wonder if you have a look at verse 11 and you can see why. Can you see in verse 11 the cause of their conundrum? There's a contradiction in verse 11. There are two things that don't fit together. There is the incompatibility of suffering and glory. That was the problem. So let's take these two words one at a time and think back about the problem. Let's take glory first of all. I don't know how well you know the Old Testament. I imagine there'll be a whole range of people in this room, some people who wonderfully are here and they are new to Christian things, new to the Bible. And the Bible is a blank sheet for you and we are thrilled that you are here with us. You've come to the right place. And there are others in this room who are very familiar with the Bible, been reading it for years and teaching it and hearing sermons. But I wonder if you've ever thought about this, that glory is the goal of all of the Old Testament promises and story. In fact, if you think about it, the Bible begins and ends with glory. It begins with a glorious creation, and it ends with a glorious new creation. Glory is the goal of the whole story. And along the way, there is lots more glory. From the first prophecy in Genesis 3.15, in which God promised that the seed of the woman will one day overthrow Satan. 
The promise given to Abraham and his descendants, a promise of glory and blessing. Think of the glory of David and his victories, the glory of Solomon's temple, or the promise of Habakkuk 2.14 that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And so all the way through the Old Testament, there is the prediction of glory. That's what the prophets run about. And you know what the people of Israel were most excited about? The bit they really understood and, and got behind and got their teeth into and felt excited and clear about? It was the promise of the Messiah. In that whole long-running story of the Old Testament, there was this figure, this person, the Christ, the Messiah, God's world-conquering king. And of course, he is all about glory. He is the king like David, but greater. He's the king who will smash Israel's enemies with a rod of iron, Psalm 2, and usher in a glorious kingdom of peace, Isaiah 55. He's the one who would achieve that ultimate final day of salvation when all God's enemies will be overthrown and God would rule his world uncontested. Well, that's the easy bit. That bit the prophets understood. That they were predicting, they were looking forward to salvation and it was going to be glorious. But look again at verse 11. Where Peter says there was another part of their message. They also predicted the sufferings of the Christ. And those sufferings of the Christ come first. And that is when they hit the problem. How could it be that alongside this glorious king, there would be suffering? But they spoke of one, who Isaiah calls the suffering servant. Alongside the glorious king of David came another figure, a less welcome one. One who is not victorious, but defeated. Not admired, but rejected. Not obeyed, but despised. Not glorious, but humiliated. Punished and killed. And so the whole problem of the Old Testament is reconciling these two themes together. See, Isaiah, who spoke often about the glorious future, look at what he said about this figure in Isaiah 53 on the screen. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. You see the contradiction? How can someone like that be the one who brings God's glorious kingdom? How can someone who is defeated... Bring God's victorious rule to the world. How can the one who suffers defeat and humiliation be the Christ who conquers? And if you already know the answer, then it's because you are privileged beyond your wildest dreams, beyond the wildest dreams of the prophets, because verse 11, they couldn't work it out. Look at verse 11 again. They were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ 
and the glories that would follow. Now, how do you, do you want a good example of what this looked like in practice, this dilemma? Go back to Peter himself, a few years before he wrote this letter. Peter in Matthew 16, when he worked out that Jesus was the glorious Christ, and Jesus then began to predict his sufferings and betrayal, we read in Matthew 16 that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. That is exactly the dilemma of the Old Testament prophets. Peter understood the glory, but the suffering made no sense to him. And Jesus turns to Peter and tells him his thinking is from Satan. In other words, something had to happen to reconcile those two ideas together. Something had to happen to make sense of the whole thing. Something supernatural, something outside human thinking needs to take place to bring the suffering and glory of Christ together. And that brings us to our second point, the gift of revelation. Now, as I said before, God, like my father-in-law, is a kind and determined communicator. Against all the odds of time and distance and language and culture, God has spoken so we can know him with absolute certainty. But you know the difference between God and my father-in-law? Well, there's lots of differences, but the difference here is that God doesn't need to take chances to leave his revelation to the whims of a balloon being tossed from a moving train. So how does he do it? Let's think then about the revelation of God. Notice now in verse 12 that although the Old Testament prophets didn't understand how their message would be fulfilled, they did know that it would be fulfilled. Read verse 12 with me again. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you. You see what Peter's saying? The prophets who wrote and spoke up to a thousand years before Jesus were not ultimately serving their own generation, but they were speaking to the readers of Peter's letter. They were speaking to us. As the prophets spoke the word of God to Israel back then, they knew that the message would not be fulfilled in their time. It was for another time, a time when it would all make sense. Now, there are a number of times in the Old Testament when the Old Testament prophet explicitly acknowledges this. Daniel chapter 8, for example, the prophet Daniel is given a vision of the future and he is told to seal it up because it concerns the distant future, but now it is beyond understanding. And there are many times when the New Testament, looking back, says the same thing. Have a look at two examples on the screen. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, for example, Paul says, these things happened to them, the Old Testament people, as examples, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Or Romans 15, 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so something has happened to make sense of it all. What is that thing? What is the thing that the readers of Peter's letter have been given that the Old Testament prophets did not have? 
Well, look again at verse 12 and see if you can see it. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel. The answer is that Peter's readers have had the gospel preached to them. They have heard the news of Jesus' death and resurrection, his death for the forgiveness of their sins, his resurrection into life and hope. They have been told the gospel of the suffering of Jesus and the glories that have followed. They have been given, verse 3, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And now, at last, everything makes sense. The glories of the Old Testament come through the resurrection of Jesus, who is at the same time the suffering servant of Isaiah, who dies on the cross to bring forgiveness. Everything now makes sense of God's revelation. Now, this is tremendously important, if you think about it, for understanding the Bible that we hold in our hands. It means that both Old Testament and New Testament have one big message, one big theme. And the theme, the message, the sufferings and glory of Christ. And I think that is a game changer when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible. I don't know if you've got a Bible in your hands right now. Some of you are looking at it on screen. Some of you, it's resting on your pews. But just feel the weight of it. It is a big book, isn't it? I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but it, it is a complex book. It's made up of 66 individual books written by 40 different authors over a period of one and a half thousand years. It's written in several different languages. It consists of narrative and poetry and songs and laws and proverbs. There are many, many stories, many parts to it. But all of it makes sense only in the light of the big story of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament pointing forward, predicting, foreshadowing, preparing. The New Testament fulfilling, looking back, revealing, explaining. The Old Testament, the black and white pencil sketch. The New Testament, the finished color. But what is the picture of? Not some moral code or some philosophy, but the whole glory of Jesus, his suffering and glory. And of course, this has many implications for how we teach and hear the Bible, which we don't have time to go in for. But for now, just think about this single implication. If you want to know Jesus, you've got to know the Bible. If you want to see Jesus, you've got to see him in the words of the Bible. If you want to grow in your love for Jesus, you've got to grow in your love for the Bible. The way you treat the words of the Bible are the way you treat Jesus Christ. If you want to grow in your knowledge of Jesus, you've got to grow in your knowledge of the Bible. There is no other way. You see, we have this idea in our world, don't we, that seeing is believing. But Peter is proving to us here that in the things that matter, it is not true. Many Israelites in the Old Testament saw glorious things, wonderful things of God, but they didn't believe. 
The Old Testament is full of God's people rejecting him and turning to idolatry. Many people saw Jesus in the flesh. Many people saw him do great miracles. Some people even saw Jesus risen from the dead and didn't believe. As Jesus himself says in Luke 16, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And so in the things that matter, no seeing is not believing. You don't have to have been there. You don't have to experience a great miracle. Everything God wants us to know is here, right here, in the words of the Bible. And if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, in your love of Jesus, in your certainty of hope, you've got to grow in your knowledge of the Bible. As Joe said before, it's great to see a number of new and returning students here with us. And I wonder how you're feeling right now about your year ahead, or two years, or three years, or four. can be daunting, can't it, the start of university life. But I want to suggest it's also an opportunity. An opportunity to learn about God. To get certainty of faith and hope. If you're not a Christian, then it's an opportunity for you to really work out what God is all about and what he has said. And if you are a Christian, it's an opportunity to grow in your knowledge of God, to grow in your love for Jesus, to make your faith rock solid so it will stand the test of time. And how are you going to do that in the year ahead? Well, let me suggest by immersing yourself in the Bible. Make church on Sundays a first priority. Get to know the Gospel of Mark starting tonight for the whole year. Romans next year, Bible overview the year after that. Be here tonight at five o'clock. Meet with another Christian to read the Bible one-to-one. And just get to work digging into the Scriptures. Because whatever you're here to study at university, this will blow your mind far more than any course you've enrolled in. Because this is how you get to see Jesus. Why not make it your aim? As well as achieving a degree to use these years to get to know the Bible and so get to know God. And for the rest of us, this is an encouragement to keep doing that, isn't it? As Sarah prayed in her prayers earlier, it is too easy to take the word of God for granted. It is easy to think that you know all you need to know. It's easy, actually, to live on the fat of past enthusiasm. Maybe some of us look back on our university days and we think that's when we learnt it, but actually, there's so much more to find ourselves awed and surprised at the greatness of glory, of, and glory of Jesus. And you might want to ask yourself, when was the last time you were freshly thrilled and awed at the glory of Christ in his word. And maybe one or two of us are drifting in this area. Maybe in your heart of hearts, you are a bit bored with the Bible. Maybe you find it easier to switch off in sermons, and when you're reading the Bible, your mind drifts, your fingers drift to your smartphone, and your mind is elsewhere. 
Well, if that's you, what can we do about it? Well, you can pray, you can repent, you can get back to work. And you can remember and imagine, if you will, the thrill of receiving that letter in your hand from Nigeria with a little balloon attached and the effort and the love and the determination and, yes, the chance that it reached you. And wouldn't you want to read it? Wouldn't you want to know what the message said? And so we need to remember that the revelation of God is a gift. The gift of revelation is our last point. Now, to understand what kind of gift the revelation of God is and why the Bible is so important, we need to think now about the role of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if you noticed the Spirit being mentioned a couple of times in this passage. In verse 11, it's the Spirit of Christ. That is the Holy Spirit who is working all the time in the Old Testament prophets when they were speaking their words of the suffering and glory of Christ. And now in verse 12, the same Spirit who worked through the Old Testament prophets now works through the New Testament preachers. Look at verse 12 again. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And therefore, it is the gift of the Spirit to reveal. Again, massive implications for how we read the Bible. Massive implications for how we understand that the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant word of God, because both Old and New Testament here are spoken by the Spirit. And massive implications for how we understand the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. When the word of God is spoken, it's the Spirit who is speaking. And when the Spirit is at work, he works through the word Notice in verse 12, there are two agencies at work, aren't there? There are the human speakers, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament preachers, ordinary human beings who spoke ordinary words in ordinary language to other people, just as I'm doing now. I'm not saying that you're ordinary, but I'm just saying, you know, that we're just ordinary people, aren't we? And these are ordinary words. But behind it all is the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. So as we read the Bible or as we listen to it being taught and explained, and as we have those penny-dropping moments when we slowly start to understand, it is the work of the Spirit. A human speaks, but God the Spirit speaks. Listen, for example, how Paul explains this to the Thessalonians, again, on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, We thank God continually because... When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now this is great news, isn't it? Because it means that ordinary people like you and I get to play a part in speaking God's words to others. You don't have to be a full-time trained Bible teacher to do it, although the world needs more of those. But it's something that all Christians get to do as we open the Bible, as we speak the word to a friend over a coffee, as we meet in small groups or chat about what God is teaching us, as we teach children at home, as we just scribble a little card or WhatsApp message 
a word of encouragement to somebody. And as we'll say, see later in the letter, this is how God is going to reach the world as Christians speak out, as we lovingly and courageously and often falteringly speak to those who don't know him. God is at work to bring about faith. This is how the Spirit of God works in the world. Not through supernatural occurrences or inner feelings or coincidences or voices or dreams. Not through emotions or singing in a crowd, but through his word in the Bible. And again, I want to suggest that this is a game changer in understanding the Christian life. See, let me put it this way. How do you know if the Spirit of God is at work in you? Or to put it another way, how do you know if, if you're a spiritual person? How do you know if the Spirit of God is at working in you? Well, the Spirit will lead you to Christ, is the answer. The great work of the Spirit is to lead us to Christ. That is his gift of revelation. And I want to underline this because many people get this the wrong way around. When I became a Christian in the teenager in the 1980s, postal strikes were over, but you could still open train windows, that's just to kind of set the scene. I was told I had to accept Jesus, and once I'd accepted Jesus, I could then be filled with the Spirit. And I would speak in tongues and feel certain emotions and experience certain things. I noticed that it was always the work of the Spirit that was spoken of as the real business. This is the tangible thing, the exciting thing. He's going to meet my need for guidance and certainty and security. And so you'd have whole courses, courses which are still running today, introducing people to Christianity, beginning with Christ and climaxing with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit weekend. Many churches and movements are based on this same order, become a Christian and then receive the Spirit as a second or climactic experience. And it's especially the case that the Spirit is then meant to lead you away from suffering into victory and health. But I want to suggest that that is a reversal of the order we see here. It's not Christ who leads you to the Spirit, it's the Spirit who leads you to Christ. There's a great example on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes and Peter immediately stands up and preaches. What does he preach about? He doesn't preach about the Spirit. The Spirit enables him to preach Christ. And the sermon is all about Jesus, his sufferings and glory. And this is Peter's point here in this letter as well. Just look back with me at verse 2. He says, They've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. I wonder if you notice the order there. Usually when the Trinity of God is mentioned, it's Father, Son, and Spirit in that order. Because the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. But look at the order in verse 2. Peter puts the Son after the Spirit to make the point that it's the work of the Spirit to bring you to Christ. So how do you know if the Spirit is at work in you? 
because the Spirit will lead you by his word to know Christ. But of course, that comes at a cost. It seems to me that whenever the Spirit is the focus in the Christian life and the goal, the trajectory is always towards glory. Freedom from pain and discomfort and inconvenience as the Spirit leads us into greater prosperity, greater health and happiness. But actually in the Bible, if the Spirit is at work in us, the Spirit leads us to Christ and leads us to Christ and his sufferings before the glory to follow. That is what we're going to see as we continue in the letter. But as we conclude this morning, what about those angels in verse 12? A few weeks ago, back in Matthew 18, we heard that the angels are supremely privileged beings. They are always seeing the face of Jesus' Father in heaven. And in the Bible, angels are indeed privileged, aren't they? They play a unique role as the messengers between heaven and earth. They are witnesses of both at the same time, supremely privileged beings. Surely the ultimate insiders when it comes to the knowledge of God. Surely we would think that if an angel came and sat on the end of our bed, they would have a thing or two to teach us about the things of God, wouldn't we? But the surprise here is that they, there is among God's creatures a more privileged being than an angel. See, here the angels are actually the outsiders peering in at the window, aren't they? They are longing to know more. The phrase look into at the end of verse 12 is an unusual word for intense longing and eager curiosity. It's the same word used in John 21 of Mary stooping to peer into the empty tomb. The angels are curious to know something that they don't know. The angels are curious with the same intensity of the Old Testament prophets. And so it is we who are the lucky ones. It is we who have heard the words of God in the Bible. Who because... Unlike angels, we are sinners and in need of salvation. We have first-hand experience, deep in our hearts, of the gracious gift of God's revelation of his Son. We are the lucky ones. The angels are looking in enviously at what we are understanding in the Bible. And how foolish we are if we neglect his gift. Can you imagine my mother-in-law back in 1971 receiving that letter and not reading it? Looking instead at the balloon, perhaps? Waiting for some inner feeling to come without actually reading the words? Well, that is what we are like if we are so foolish to pass by the words of God. Now we are exiles passing through into glory. How are we going to make it? How are we going to get there without giving up? By hearing the words of the Spirit as he leads us through suffering and into glory and the hope of heaven. Even angels 
long to look into these things. And so must we. Well, I'm going to pray in a moment, but I'll give you a minute now just to fill in the response box on the sheet. Something that has struck you, perhaps something you want to go away and pray about or think about or ask a question about. Something that needs clarifying. Something you just love to share with someone over coffee. Some way God has spoken to you. Well, let's uh, pray then and ask for God's help as we take these words to heart. Let's pray. Jesus says in Matthew 13, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've not left us in the ignorance and darkness that we deserved, but have spoken to us clearly in the Bible by your Spirit, so that we might know you, the sufferings and glories of Christ, and be saved. Please forgive us for those times when we take this great gift lightly, and please change us to be people who listen carefully to your words so that we might see Jesus and love him and live for him with thankfulness, joy, and praise for the glory of the cross, now and for always. Amen.